It's been 12 years since FIFA announced that the World Cup would be hosted in Qatar. The tournament has attracted a lot of attention, and mostly not for the football. The World Cup kicks off on Sunday, and it promises to be one of the strangest and most controversial in the tournament's 90-year history. The president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, insisted in a press conference in late October that everyone is welcome in Qatar. But shortly afterwards, the charity Human Rights Watch detailed systemic abuse of LGBT people in the tiny Gulf state, and yet another damning report on civil liberties in the country. FIFA have also talked up the most successful hospitality programme ever, even while more and more accounts are uncovered of those thousands of migrant workers that have died in the process of building the stadiums, hotels and infrastructure for this festival of football. And even if fans are willing to overlook all this, there's still a massive cost barrier. Qatar's 2022 World Cup will be one of the most prohibitively expensive World Cups in history for a typical fan to actually attend. Welcome to the Eye Podcast. I'm Ollie Blackhall, and this week we'll be looking at the 2022 Qatar World Cup and why this event tells us a lot about the kind of sway billions of dollars of oil money can buy you in today's world. Later, we'll come back home and ask why the price of childcare in the UK is pushing parents to the brink and what needs to be done about it. But first, we head to Qatar, where Eye's chief football writer, Daniel Storey, is reporting on the World Cup. We're also joined by Patrick Strudwick, I's special correspondent, who has been covering some of the human rights abuses in the country. Just going to put a warning here that the next segment will include discussions of sexual violence. So, Daniel, you're in Qatar to cover the tournament. How does it compare, I'm wondering, to previous World Cups that you've attended? I mean, the, the very basis of it is completely different in that Never before has a, a major tournament, either a European Championship or a, a World Cup, been held almost completely around one city. Qatar itself is roughly the size of Yorkshire, and the stadiums are all contained within an area roughly the size of, of Nottinghamshire, which is significantly smaller still. So that's completely different. You know, you're used to, to travelling, you're used to planes, trains and automobiles, and <laughs> other than the, the journey from, from Heathrow to Doha, there really isn't an awful lot of that. The lack of variety, the lack of travel, the lack of kind of meeting people from all over a country, it it feels inherently different to me. And and I think that's a shame purely from a a kind of football point of view. That's really interesting. You've written in your coverage of of the run-up to the World Cup that this tournament will push fans' loyalty to the limit. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, very briefly and quickly, there is a a financial argument that makes this incredibly difficult. Accommodation is very expensive. Fans are required to pay up front. Normally, an England supporter, for example, would maybe book out group stages, travelling to three different cities, would then preliminarily book group stage matches with free cancellation. None of that is available here. Everything had to be paid for up front. Everything had to be booked up front. And everything has, has come at a huge premium. But more than that, it's it's the overwhelming, kind of pervading sense around this tournament that it isn't a particularly good news story. And, and I think fans see that as much as anyone. To an extent, fans may accept Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president's stick-to-football missive, but, but most of them are far smarter than that and far more complex than that and can see the, the myriad issues around the tournament. 
which have created not just logistical and financial issues, but also moral quandaries for them to make. Patrick, you've been speaking to LGBT plus people who have lived in Qatar and their experiences in a country where being gay could land you in prison. Can you tell us a bit about what your reporting's uncovered? Yes, of course. I should start by saying that in 20 years of journalism, during which I've specialised in LGBT matters for the majority of that, Qatar has been the single hardest country to report from on these issues. And the reason for that is because the scale of fear and terror among this community, there is a part of the regime called the Preventive Security Department. And what they do is they go on gay dating apps, pose as a gay man or straight man looking to have sex with a trans woman or a gay man, talk to people, invite them to their hotel room, And when people show up, they are arrested by preventive security department officials. Once they're arrested, they will be brought to the police station. And if they are a foreign worker, they can be deported. Many people and people I've spoken to have been subject to extreme violence and sexual violence during those proceedings. One man in particular that I interviewed who is now back home in the Philippines, where he was deported to, was raped by officials in the hotel room that he was lured to, one after the other, and was deported within 48 hours. We know that this is also not an isolated incident by any means. The only out gay Qatari in the world, Dr Naz Mohammed, has also spoken to me at length. And he is working with Human Rights Watch to ascertain for the first time, really, the nature and extent of oppression against LGBT people in the country. And there's a lot there. Once people are arrested, if they're not deported, if they are Qatari national, they can be sent to an underground prison in Doha, where some have been subjected to head shaving, sexual harassment, violence... Some are also sent forcibly to conversion therapy. So the scale and depth of the persecution is really extraordinary. And as I say, I've never encountered people so afraid to even have contact with another gay person online or through an app or through a telephone call speaking anonymously to a journalist in another country. It's just absolutely horrifying to hear of it. I mean, I wonder what impact the World Cup has had on any of this? Has it had an impact on sort of LGBT plus communities in Qatar at all? Well, it's a complicated picture because on the one hand, what people on the ground are saying to me is that in fact, despite the protestations of FIFA and the proclamations of public figures who've taken money to appear at the World Cup as ambassadors or on state broadcasters, in fact, the clampdown on LGBT people has increased in the lead up to the World Cup. There have been more reported incidents of people being lured to hotel rooms, arrested and deported. And there are fears among many that once the dog and pony show leaves town, there would be a further backlash, particularly from the Qatari authorities to, and I'm quoting Dr. Mohammed here, to cleanse the Western influence. We should not be, cannot be naive here. 
It is extraordinary to imagine that merely having a football tournament could really overturn deeply entrenched oppression within a country. That said, many people feel that there are opportunities within this to even just talk about it, to have a certain level of visibility, to give LGBT Qataris hope. That is something, and that shouldn't be dismissed. But yes, the idea that footballers playing matches in a country and wearing rainbow armbands is going to overturn laws, if nothing else, is preposterous. Daniel, this might be a good time to quiz you a bit on this. How has FIFA responded to these controversies? We've seen obviously a huge amount of conversation and reporting around the human rights abuses that are present in Qatar. What are FIFA saying about it? FIFA and its president, Gianni Infantino, to my mind, have kind of got a completely paradoxical approach to dealing with the issue. The first is this notion that football can unite the world, that if we bring the show to town, then, then as Patrick says, this will somehow change people's minds. And that will not happen. And I can only imagine that they know that that will not happen. Their reason for using that argument is to act, I think, as an explanation for rewarding Qatar the tournament. If you say football can change the world and we're giving them the World Cup, we're allowing the World Cup to change the world. Actually, the logical argument is completely the opposite, that awarding a country a World Cup should be a reward for establishing that change, not a driver for it, because time and again it's been proven that the driver simply doesn't work. Alongside that, Gianni Infantino has also kind of railed against this notion that we should be expecting change. He said, to paraphrase him him last week, let's stick to football. Let's let football do the talking. And to my mind, those approaches are completely paradoxical. You can't say that football will change the world and accept that argument and expect us to accept that argument. And then when the questions get difficult, say, stick to football. And then to almost act as the having your cake and eating it and taking home the doggy bag, this week he's also use the G, a speech of the G20 summit to ask Ukraine and Russia to have a ceasefire during the tournament, as if to say football can overcome war. We can all be at, at peace during football time. I also made a plea to the world leaders, in particular with regard to the war in uh, Ukraine, calling really for um, a ceasefire for the duration of the World Cup, at least. A World Cup, which should be an occasion for joy and togetherness and unity, can be the trigger for a message of hope. And again, that doesn't work when you then figuratively run away from the questions that have been asked on on those very serious topics that Patrick has discussed. Can I ask you, Daniel, I know it was 12 years ago now, but I think a lot of people listening to this will be wondering why Qatar got handed the World Cup in the first place. Well, look, uh, we need to be a little bit careful here. Qatar has been cleared of all corruption charges. That is the first thing to say. But a number of people within that bidding process have been subject to investigation on questions of fraud. And Gian Infantino is in a, a fairly fortunate position in that he became FIFA president in 2016. The bid was awarded in, in 2010 and therefore he kind of was able to act as a almost as a a kind of clean slate for FIFA on that issue to say, this World Cup is happening, let's make it the best it can be. It was, we should remember, originally awarded as a summer tournament. This stuff pales completely into insignificance when it comes to the, the matters that Patrick is discussing. But it was awarded as a summer tournament. And 
it has been moved six months to become the first ever Winter World Cup just to accommodate them. So the footballing world, the supporters that are here, even those that are coming and are excited, can look at this tournament and realise that it's a tournament that, that football seems to have bent over backwards for. And on a personal point of view, I don't think we've been given due reason to do that. I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned there. You know, you mentioned the sort of wider footballing community here, you know, the fans, people like yourselves. How has the wider football community responded to these human rights abuses? There has been a a hugely varied response. There's been a kind of compartmentalised response pertaining to, to different countries. Norway and Germany, for example, have been incredibly vocal on it. German football supporters at, at recent domestic games have, have protested with banners and have called for boycotts. They have gone far further, I think, than, than anyone else. In England, there have been measures put in place. I don't think they're anywhere near enough. Patrick mentioned the, the rainbow armbands. The, the squad flew to, to Doha on Tuesday on a, a Virgin Atlantic flight named... The plane was named Rainbow. These are all gestures, and I'm sure they're well-meaning gestures, but ultimately they are, they are just gestures. I find it very difficult to assess from a moral stance what players should be expected to do and indeed managers should be expected to do. They did not choose the World Cup to be in Qatar. This is their profession. This is the height of their careers, they hope. And it does feel slightly... <laughs> unfair to ask a a 22-year-old Bukaya Saka what he thinks of the Kefala system in Qatar and and of the treatment of migrant workers and of the treatment of the LGBT community. But he should not be put in this position. That's exactly the point. He should not be in a position where he's having to answer these questions because this shouldn't, on a moral stance, be happening. I mean, I I agree with that, Daniel, that they shouldn't have been put in that position in the first place. It's also true to say that with privilege comes comes responsibility. And it is an immense privilege to play for your country. These are footballers who, yes, are young, but they are paid enormously. They represent not just their country in, in sporting terms, but effectively they represent our values and it's, it's been very interesting because I've spoken to, among the people that I've spoken to in the region are one of the only LGBT Arab organisations based in the Gulf region called Ahwa. And they were in talks with FIFA last year. Ahwa say that FIFA never really followed up and were effectively engaging in this process to pay lip service to human rights. But what they say is that They would rather that high-profile people like David Beckham, who is taking a huge amount of money to be an ambassador there, and players, teams, make some gesture, say something, than have fans, whether LGBT or allies, protesting on the street, waving rainbow flags, kissing each other, that kind of a thing. The kind of thing that might, in fact, lead to some kind of retribution from local Qataris or even possibly from the police, even though Qatar has said that they will not do that. The fear is that that could end up in some kind of nasty situation, which is actually the last thing that local Qataris need to see. They don't need to see more violence or oppression played out against their own community so it's actually better if it comes from public figures with platforms 
who could do or say something. Just while you were talking, I was wondering really if there is any sense of hope. I mean, I know you mentioned that there are fears that actually this could do even more damage in Qatar. Is there any sense of hope for the future as a result of of what's going on? I'd say overall, there is a general feeling that all of these things are too entrenched. Because, of course, you can never see state persecution of LGBT people in isolation. It always goes hand in hand with how a country treats women in particular. In order for things to change towards LGBT people, they invariably have to come as a situation for women change. We have to remember the the situation facing women in Qatar. They are subject to terrible restrictions, terrible oppressive laws stop them from having any sense of freedom, any reality of freedom. They have to ask permission from a man before they can do certain jobs, go certain places. It's not dissimilar to Saudi Arabia. And so we have to talk about the liberation of LGBT people in parallel to and with the liberation of women. Hopefully, one thing might lead to another, Certainly there's going to be more advocacy, there'll be more public discussion. There is a platform now for LGBT Qataris to build on something. You know, Dr Mohammed coming out, the World Cup being there, the world's media looking at this. There is an opportunity, but we are at the very beginning of a long road out. And how do the Qatari officials respond to these allegations and this criticism? Some of it they deny, some of it they say nothing about. And some of it, they say they've improved. And other bits of it, they defend as their culture. Many would argue that hatred of human beings for a certain aspect of who they are, you know, that doesn't constitute culture. And if it does, then change it. The other, not from the LGBT point of view, but certainly from the migrant workers point of view, the other slight tinge to their rejection of criticism is is actually to accuse various foreign governments particularly german ambassador of, of racism of saying you are you are being racist against our culture by imposing your own ideals upon us which is you know is a fairly predictable fighting fire with fire response i get that but makes everything so much harder to fight for when that is the kind of auto response on certain issues Thank you both so much for joining us. I feel like we could talk about this all day and it's absolutely so important that we continue to have these conversations. So thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The team at I will be providing daily news, comments, analysis and reaction from the World Cup in Qatar from our award-winning writers, Kevin Garside, Sam Cunningham, Daniel Storey, Mark Douglas and Peter Hall, who will all be on the ground in Doha. Reporting like this, without fear or favour, is important. An iDigital subscription gives you daily access to fair and unbiased news, whenever and wherever you are. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. Whether it's online or on the newsstand, we are committed to bringing you trusted, non-partisan news. I, for open minds, subscribe today.
I would love to hear any comments and suggestions that you guys have. So do drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk. And you can also reach me on Instagram at molly.blackall and Molly Blackall on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you all next week.